0: The following presentation was recorded live at the 2014 National Bioneers Conference. To learn more about Bioneers programs and media products, visit www.bioneers.org. My
1: name is Jay Nichols, and um, I pulled together some friends here to go to go deeper into the Blue Mind conversation, and to explore the practice as well as the science, the neuroscience. And um, I'm, I'm not gonna say very much at all. I'm really interested in just passing the microphone, but we're going to hear from Andy, Nick, Kevin, and then Melina's gonna join us for uh, some conversation and some questions between us, and then we'll open it up to some Q&A. We have plenty of time, hopefully, for that. How's that sound? That's the plan, okay? Very good? Enthusiastic front row. We got Denver in the house, right? Yeah. All right, so without further ado, Andy will tell you quite a bit about what she does and who she is and her work and her passion. But to me, she is uh, an inspiration, a dear friend, uh, a, a source of constant creative ideas. She's an educator. Uh, she is a, a, a citizen, a very involved citizen, um, and she has a wonderful family, and she teaches at a great school called the Rooftop School in San Francisco. And so it's, a, it's always wonderful to spend time with her and listen to her speak. So you're in for a treat. This is Andy Wong. Um,
2: we're looking for the clicker. <laughs> Um, hello, everybody. I'm really happy to be here and really pleased that Jay invited me to join this amazing group of people. Um, I am a teaching artist, and for those of you who've never heard that phrase, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a credential teacher. I'm an artist that chooses to teach. Um, I love working with kids, and I work at a kindergarten through eighth grade um, school environment. Greenman. Um, and I kind of wanted to go through a little bit of my journey as to how I got there because I didn't plan on doing this Um, have you ever had a moment in your life when all of a sudden you know you're never going to be the same Um, that's kind of what happened to me so I'm here to talk about a project um, that's called the Blue Marbles Project and it's tied up with the Blue Mind idea that Jay presented um, to all of you earlier um, my story kind of begins moving to San Francisco in a time when I was having kids I had kids and before that I was a teaching, I wasn't teaching I was working at home alone in my studio as an illustrator and graphic designer and um, what happened was my daughter was three and a half and my son was 18 months and I was doing the chores I took them to the grocery store and I was taking them out of my van in my garage, and I had that moment of, "Uh uh-oh. The garage door was open, and I had kind of that instinct, that wild instinct that says, pay attention, and I did, and nothing happened. And I let my guard down, and then the next minute there was someone in the garage with us. And um, he asked for my money, and then he asked for my keys, and it just kept getting bigger. And it got to the point where I had to decide what I was gonna do because he was gonna do something to me in front of my children. And at that point, um, the wild instinct kicks in. And I said, no way. Um, in the struggle, I was hit, and um, at the time I didn't know it, but the my left orbit of my eye is no longer there. So I always think about that a lot too, that when you look at me, you'd never know, but when I go, you'll know that I'm different. Um, And so I had this period of being with my family and trying to figure out, well, how am I gonna do this? It was an introduction to um, the medical system, the legal system, and also the education system. What I didn't know at the time was that the person who assaulted me He was a gang member, a youth, and um, I didn't find out until I had to confront him in the courtroom that he had a baby. And um, I think about him a lot because I don't really know where he went, and I hope that he went someplace good. Um, And I'll never ever know, I don't think. Um, I wanted to find a place where my children were safe. My daughter experienced a lot of trauma um, she was three and a half and she had a very difficult time staying grounded and she would hear a noise and she'd end up under the table. Um, we were lucky in that we were pointed to a project called the Child Trauma Project through San Francisco General and I worked with a wonderful team of doctors and we did family counseling that was all play. And we would go every week and we would sit and we would play and my daughter would play with dolls and toys and blocks and bricks and the whole thing would be reenacted over and over and we would kind of watch her and try to hold it together. And my son would be there too. And um, I learned a lot about the power of play and the power of art through those sessions. Um, it came time for us to find a kindergarten and I, the thought of Sending my child to a kindergarten um, was something that I I thought, okay, I really want to do this right, because I know she's dealing with a lot. And I went to look at a lot of schools, public and private, and I ended up at this one school um, that I really, really loved. But the thing that I think about is that I was going through trauma too. And um, I was trying to do my work and trying to be a mom. And this is actually... Uh, the work that I was working on at the time when everything happened and I put it up because I know I did this painting with one eye and I know I didn't want to do this painting because I had other things I would have preferred to be thinking about, but I had to do the painting. And now I look at it and uh, it reminds me that, you know, you can do things and sometimes things don't have meaning until later. Rooftop School, when you look at it, it's in the center of San Francisco, pretty much smack dab. And the thing about it is that it draws from all parts of San Francisco. It's a very diverse school. You have to apply to get in. And when you get there, it's very idyllic. Um, This is what we do every day. We gather in a circle, and we sing this song. And the song is called... um, it's actually called Song for Judith, but it's called Open the Door. And it's a song that um, I thought it was amazing because it's been sung every day for almost 35 years. And when you think about a school and the number of people going through, and especially a public school in the middle of San Francisco, um, the generations that have gone through it, um, as a designer, you always talk about designing for extremes that you learn a lot when you design from extremes. And I thought, this is an extreme environment. And I've learned so much. It's a warm school, they mentor people, and sometimes families stay there as long as 25 years before they move on. So it really is like a family. Um, I went there and I ended up doing art in the classroom. The thing that's unusual about the program is that They have art teachers and artists that come in, and the teachers do art, but they also invite parents to come in and do art, and this is a long-standing tradition. And when I came in, there was a worry that the economy was making it so that parents couldn't really volunteer. And so we started doing a program, and it was called um, the Lincoln Center Institute Model of Aesthetic Education, which is a big mouthful, the important thing to think about is that aesthetic is the opposite of anesthetic. And so the whole goal is to get people to feel, and that you do that through challenging works of art. The school was founded by, um, when you look at this portrait, you can see the woman behind the, the, um, the big sculpture. Um, she didn't found, found the school, but she is probably more responsible for art in San Francisco schools than anybody. Her name is Ruth Asawa, and she passed away last year. Um, the thing that's kind of mind-blowing is that these huge sculptures, she did them while she had all these kids. And um, and they talk about how they don't really know how their mother did it. But the thing that's mind-blowing to me is that, do you see she's got this spool of wire here? These baskets are all made from a single spool of wire. And um, it's a technique that she learned when she went to Mexico, and she watched how they made baskets. The um, woman over here on the right is her daughter, Iko, and Iko um, started the Rooftop Art Program. And what I know is that the things that Ruth knew, she taught Ico, and then Ico in turn taught all of us. The, um, the kicker to the story is that Ruth Asawa was interned in the Japanese internment camps, and that's how she found her way to art. She would have probably been a farmer, but a fate intervened and put her in a camp with artists from Walt Disney and taught her how to draw. She wanted to be a teacher, and they told her that she couldn't because she was Japanese-American. And so she ended up, by fortune, good fortune, going to Black Mountain College, where her professors were Buckminster Fuller, And Joseph Albers, she went to school with John Cage and Merce Cunningham. And um, yeah, it's really insane. And when I opened up the art manuals at our school and I saw the lesson plans that Ico had gathered, I thought, oh my goodness, there's this tradition. Um, They're teaching children from a very early age how to make beautiful things from practically nothing. So um, this piece over here is made out of milk cartons. And Ruth looked at a milk carton and figured out, oh, perfect material, just like she looked at um, this material here. This is a fountain in um, Union Square called the Grand Hyatt Fountain. It was made of flour, salt, and water that was then cast. And she would take this material called baker's dough and she would invite the entire community to come and make this fountain. So this fountain is made from hundreds of hands, and then cast, and um, you can go see it and, it. and she loved water. She was called the Fountain Lady. And you may have seen some of her fountains around San Francisco. This fountain, the origami fountain in Japantown. There's a fountain on the Embarcadero. There's her beloved mermaid fountain. Um, and so, if you look closely at those, a lot of times it'll be paper that's cast in bronze or baker's dough cast in bronze, and you don't really know it until you know her story. So I inherited this tradition, and I'd like to think that I did my best to continue it. We um, worked with this wonderful jazz musician who's a friend of mine named Marcus Shelby. And with him, I'm not, I wasn't trained as a musician, but I came to understand music in a whole different way because he studied the blues. And um, he actually talked about the history of America through the art form. And that most people think the blues is about sadness, but really the blues is about sadness and joy and everything in between. And so we taught the children about how the blues was used to communicate from Harriet Tubman to Martin Luther King to Louis Armstrong. and when we got to Louis Armstrong, I really wanted to know, well, what does it feel like to be in a place where this comes from? And so I decided that we would take a family trip to New Orleans. And I visited the swamp for the first time. And I'd never seen such a magical place. And I thought, you know, can you make people love a place if they've never been there? and can, especially children, I work with children, and some of them are in um, poverty, I and mean, I know that they don't get to travel, and um, I wanted them to understand jazz, and I thought this is really key to them understanding. So we found a project called the Fundrid Project where we made fake um, hundred dollar bills that we called Fundrid's, and the project was a collaborative art project to raise awareness that one in three children in New Orleans suffer from lead poisoning. And when I heard this statistic, it just, I couldn't believe it. I just thought, how could that be in our country, that one in three, this is, how could people sit there? You know, that idea of using your your voice to something, and I thought, we need to do something. So we decided that we would serve as a collection um, center for this project and an armored vehicle drove from New Orleans to our school and collected our bank box. And we did a whole year of preparing for this. We did a huge second line celebration where we marched down the street. We created this art installation, and it was the first time I actually thought a lot about this iconic image called the blue marble. We put it into this art exhibit that gathered family stories, and it was our culminating art piece that went into the De Young Museum. Um, and I felt really good because I thought, you can teach people to love a place even if they've never been there. And we went on to the next year where we were going to study Impressionism. And in the course of my getting excited about the next year's study, um, something terrible happened called Deep Water Horizon. And I thought, all of that love that we created for this place, it's just gone. It's something different. And, and I had a really hard time, because I, I remember going to New Orleans, and I would have people say, tell everyone to come visit, don't forget about us. And I thought, they, they're forgotten. And I stayed up all night looking for something to do, because artists, they just can't stand it. You have to do something and I found this. And it was a report by a marine biologist who had flown in a plane over what they called Ground Zero, and his name was Wallace J. Nichols. And I watched the report, and I was thinking about impressionism, and I'm thinking about, well, what happens if you wake up in the morning and your world looks different? And um, I wrote to him, and I asked him, about the water and the colors of the water, and he told me that it was every color imaginable. And I thought, he wrote me back. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. And, um, and he explained to me you know, what was going on with that water, and I thought, oh, okay. And then um, one of his friends named Sarah, she was really worried about you, and she uh, organized a benefit And I thought, I'm gonna come. And so I did, and he was there and he told all of us what he had just seen. And at the end of the evening, he gave everybody in the room a blue marble. And um, I thought, oh, this is interesting. And I thought, I I need to do something. And I didn't know, and you said, um, take this marble, um, learn all that you can, find something that you love to do. Do it, and then most importantly, tell me what you do. And then you said, you know, you'll know what to do. <laughs> and um, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I had just started in a new part of my life where um, I had taken on the computer lab at our school because I thought arts and technology should really be integrated. And that um, I wanted to explore that. And when I inherited the computer lab, I found out really quickly that the kids didn't want me to get in the way of them playing this game. And this game is called Marble Blast. If I didn't let them play the game, they got really mad. They actually revolted on me. And, um, and I thought, well, I could get really mad at them or I could understand what the appeal is. And I watched them play and I saw that when they did something great, you would get fireworks and you'd hear the sound. And then I would ask them to turn off the sound and do it again. And, but the most important thing that I learned from the kids was they told me that this game, they knew that they could get better at it. And then the sobering thing was they said that they knew they could never die. And I thought, okay. And, and then I was carrying this marble in my pocket. It had been three months later and the marble was still in my pocket. And I thought, I know what we're going to do. And so we started passing the marble around and saying, what if we could play this game in the real world? And I asked the kids, where would you like to send it? And they'd say, oh, to grandma's house. And i go, no, think bigger, something really, you know, exciting. And finally, the kids said, I know, we'll send it to the World Series. And I thought, okay, we're going to do this. And so I walked next door to the lunchroom and Mr. Rogers, our fourth grade teacher, was sitting there and he said, I'm going to the game, I'll take it. And so he brought it to the World Series and we saw the Giants win that game, that was game two. And he came back the next day for Halloween and I thought, okay, this is really fun. Um, My friend Shannon, who was the school's chorus teacher, was going to Cuba. And I thought, she's going to a place that the kids will never ever get to see. And so she took the marble along with medical supplies and school supplies and showed us what Cuba looked like. And she said to us later, the blue marble opens doors. So we started packaging up the marbles and sending them with people that we knew. We asked kids, where do you want it to go? And they would tell us and then we would see it happen. And... We would send it with my friend Marcus. He went to Tokyo to play at the Blue Note. He conducted the Count Basie Orchestra. And um, at that point, the tsunami hit Fukushima. So we've been watching this marble go all over the world. And sometimes people fail. So this is an epic fail. My husband wanted to go to the Empire State Building, and he watched his marble go down a sewer grate but the but the marvelous thing is then Nathan picked it up and he finished and did it. It's been to Mongolia. It's been to the River Ganges and to the small world that kids love. And we've mapped it as it's gone all over the world. We took it to Antarctica and that was like the big one. We, it took three years, but we managed to get it to Antarctica. And we can see the farthest reaches the space and the deepest parts of the ocean now and we know that wherever we are we're home and so I'd like to show you that it's kind of amazing if you can get kids to see the world through blue what they start to believe is possible and when I look out and I see all of the marvels that have gone I think about well what could it be like if more people actually tried and this is what I want to close with. This is Izzy, and he's the first kid that ever got a blue marble from me. And this is him today. Um, He was Ruth Asawa's great-grandson. And when Ruth passed away, I gave him a second marble because the first marble he got, he gave it to Ruth. The second marble, he gave to his sister, Lucia Ruth. And so I like to think that um, we have a chance to get kids started believing that they can make a difference and feel connected and that maybe the small things do matter. So, thank you.
1: I told you something about Andy that now you know to be true. Um, I'm going to hand the microphone over to Nick Save, who's uh, um, become a good friend and... He is a, a neuroscientist at Stanford University, as are the rest of the people on the panel. And that may sound like a, um, a left turn in, in this conversation, but as you'll see, it's a fascinating path, and this thread, and the blue thread that connects us to nature through our wonderful brains uh, is a really interesting theme. And Nick's love for nature and passion for understanding human brain uh, is, is inspiring and interesting and, and continues to, to unfold. And it's, a, it's marvelous to watch his, his glorious career develop. So I'll pass it over to Nick.
3: Thanks, Jay. Um, so I am uh, part of the Emmett Interdisciplinary Program for Environment and Resources at Stanford, uh, which is a really great uh, interdisciplinary program that basically lets us study anything about the environment even if it's uh, quite far out. I can't think of anywhere other than Stanford uh, that I'd be able able to study uh, what I'm doing uh, right now, which is basically uh, looking at how people make uh, environmental decisions uh, through brain imaging uh, and trying to understand what Uh, predicts that behavior uh, and what uh, directs them to make more uh, pro-environmental choices. And so it was kind of a a tangled path that led me uh, to that weird niche. Uh, Basically I was born with a brittle bone disability uh, and so most of my childhood I was uh, bedridden and stuck inside the house Uh, and so when I was able to get out into nature that was a big uh, thing for me Uh, and so nature took on this epic significance. I ended up Uh, reading a ton of wilderness stories, and in time I wrote my own uh, Wolf wolf Trails, which was a book about wolves being reintroduced into the wild, Uh, and that led me to biology uh, when I was doing my undergrad, Uh, and since I couldn't do uh, field work uh, in ecology, I started going more towards uh, neuroscience, where I could uh, make an impact, and I worked uh, in biotech for a few years um, after that. Uh, But as I kept working in biotech, I felt like I was going further and further afield uh, from what brought me to uh, my interest in bio in the first place. I wasn't doing things that connected back to nature and the environment as all these big uh, things were happening. And so uh, late one night, I was reading uh, neuroeconomics papers for fun, like everybody does, right? Uh, And uh, I started thinking, you know, a lot of the things that they were bringing up in these... In these papers, they're all about how people make decisions about uh, financial matters, right, and how we do trade-offs between, uh, you know, our present selves and our future, or between our moral values and, uh, you know, economic benefits, right? They're all things that uh, impact, trace back to uh, environmental implications. And so I was wondering, you know, has anybody looked at this? Uh, And that was around 2009, and I looked around and, and nobody... Uh, had put the two together, uh, and so I went um, back to Stanford where I had done my undergrad uh, and asked the biology department, you know, is this something that you guys would support because it's a, it's kind of a weird uh, crossroads, uh, and they said, no, that's not something that we would do in, in disciplinary biology, uh, but we do have this other program that uh, would be open to this kind of stuff, and uh, they were interested, and so the last four years has been um, me learning everything about neuroimaging and environmental economics and, and decision-making and trying to figure out um, how to make an impact on how we know we make decisions about the environment and making more responsible decisions, trying to facilitate that. Um, so neuroeconomics, um, I talked a little bit about uh, what it is already. It's basically, um, it's been very useful also in determining how... Um, the, the reasons behind like, these behavioral economics problems with how people make predictably irrational uh, choices uh, when they're making decisions. Uh, and one of the most profound things that we can get at for uh, environmental decision-making uh, is really how do different types of people make different decisions, right? If someone's more pro-environmental, what's going on in the brain that's promoting that kind of uh, decision path, and how do we facilitate that? Um, And are there people that, uh, for instance, we we were doing some work on on eco-labeling and how uh, people look at the, when they see the Energy Star label, uh, how does that influence their decision? When they're looking at energy consumption information, how much it's going to cost them uh, down the line to have a more efficient fridge or more efficient light bulb, what's going on? Um, And, you know, you can find some surprising things, like people who are better at math systematically undervalue the amount of money that they're going to save... Uh, through time in, uh, by m- making an energy-efficient choice, right? And so how do you promote uh, in these, you know, predictably irrational situations um, the responsible and environmental decision? Uh, another really cool thing that we can do with neuroeconomics is behavioral prediction, so um, going beyond just saying, oh, these parts of the brain uh, are lighting up uh, and they correlate with this thing that somebody saw uh, or you know this choice that they made, um, but trying to bring that to a population level, you know does a small neuro focus group actually predict what 's going on out in the world and there's been a few examples of this uh, so far, uh, one being um, predicting music sales uh, from how people uh, you know basically listen to unsigned artists uh, on MySpace, and then a few years later, uh, they looked at how, how those uh, Songs actually did uh, in the real world, and people's ratings, conscious ratings of how much they said they liked the song, uh, in that study, uh, did not predict how well these songs would do out in the real world. But uh, the reward pathway in their brain, when that was lighting up, uh, that correlated with how long, how, how well it would do in the real world. And similarly, there's for policy implications uh, when people were talking about. like how effective anti-smoking ad campaigns are. Uh, There was a study uh, of heavy smokers uh, and asking them to rank how effective do you think these will be, showing them that when they're getting their brains scanned. Uh, And again, their conscious rankings didn't line up with how effective these were on a nationwide scale, um, but a part of their brains that uh, interacts with behavioral change, individual behavior change, um, when that was more active when they were seeing these ads that predicted uh, that these ads in the real world would prompt people uh, to call in and try to quit smoking to to these hotlines. So we're hoping that eventually we can get to the point where uh, we can make an impact on environmental issues and using these neural focus groups uh, to see how policies would play out in the real world and how they would affect people's choice and how many people, how you can reach the, the maximum number of people. So how do we image the brain? We basically um, put people in uh, this tube here and this kind of looks like the uh, bridge of the Starship Enterprise, but it's actually in the basement of the uh, quad at Stanford and so that's where we all do a a lot of scanning and spend a lot of our time. Um, People go into that tube and they've got basically a a screen in front of them, they can see a mirrored image of a computer screen and they can respond to uh, what's going on on that with a button box. And so, they're, they're able to interact with whatever computer program we've built uh, for them to engage with. So, one study I want to talk about real quickly, uh, just to give you guys an idea of how we look at um, how people value the environment, how people are motivated to protect the environment. Um, we were looking at, basically, when people are asked what they're willing to pay to protect a, a space, This is a very common thing that environmental economists will do, most notably after things like the Exxon Valdez spill, because it's very easy to estimate um, how much it's going to cost people that a fishery is lost, right, and that the economic productivity is down. But quality of life for people that are in that region or uh, how much people really love knowing that that natural space was there, that's harder for environmental economists to price, right? And so, Historically, what they've been doing to to figure that out uh, is a thing called uh, contingent valuation surveys. Um, and the problem with this is you're basically just asking people, um, hypothetically, how much would you be willing to pay uh, to protect or restore this place? Um, and they get a lot of responses. It depends on the study, but a lot of them have a third to half of the responses. Um, being met with, you can't put a price on that. It's invaluable. People refuse to answer completely, uh, or they put a willingness to pay that's larger than their bank account, right? And things that they would never actually pay in real life. And environmental economists then have to throw these responses out. Um, So it ends up being like, how do you figure out um, what these places are actually worth to people? Can you get a, a value signal for that? And get a clearer understanding through the brain uh, of how, how people value these places. Um, one of the other big problems with contingent valuation is uh, they noticed that people were focused on what happened to the place. So when there's an oil spill, you know, you're know you really determining your willingness to pay uh, with like a punitive reaction to, I want to make those guys pay for destroying that beautiful space, right? And so your, your price goes up and you're not actually valuing uh, the, the natural place so much as Um, responding to the land use that impacted it. Uh, So we wanted to kind of understand, you know, can we see the role of emotion in environmental valuation in the brain, right? And do the actions that impact these resources matter more than the resource itself? Uh, And ideally, can we predict behavior? Uh, And we're looking mainly in three different parts of the brain um, really quickly for for emotion, Um, basically, We're looking in the kind of reward pathway of the brain for kind of uh, approach behavior, things that you like. This is the same area of the brain that lights up for things like, you know, food, sex, money, all the good basic uh, core things that people go after. Um, And then we're also looking for, you know, avoidance response and response to kind of um, negative stimuli. And this broadly aversive response can be found in, in a part of the brain called the anterior insula. And there's integration of this emotional information to try to do kind of subjective value calculations of how much something is worth to you um, in a place called the MPFC or Medial Prefrontal Cortex and kind of you know higher cortical, more rational stuff uh, kind of behind your forehead there. So um, The way we constructed this is people were given $24 to protect um, national parks that were um, basically threatened by proposed uh, land uses that had varying levels of destructiveness. So they could donate um, one of these choices was chosen to account for real. Um, and the donation would go to their choice of California State Parks or National Parks Foundation. Uh, and what they saw in the scanner was basically they'd see the place. This is kind of the hit you over the head example. Um, they'd see uh, the proposed land use for a portion of the park. Um, and there is pressure to do uh, mining within ten miles of Yosemite. So wherever possible, we tried to make ones that are uh, somewhat grounded in reality. Uh, and then asking people, you know, do you want to donate? If if enough people donate this amount, um, it's sufficient to you know keep the park open without having to compromise um, on selling off part of it. And then people decided yes or no, we want to donate. And Obviously, the more destructive the land use was, uh, the more people would uh, donate to protect it. But also, people donated more to places they felt were iconic or archetypal, places that really resonated with them in terms of how they uh, they looked, right? Um, And so, I'll just kind of gloss over this, but basically, we saw the reward pathway activating when people saw these iconic natural landscapes. Um, We saw the anterior insula, the aversive response, the more destructive that the place, uh, the, the land use for the place was. Uh, and then the integration of this information was taking place uh, in the MPFC, in, in this more uh, rational value uh, part of the brain. And so that's all well and good for what's responding to emotional stimuli, but we also wanted to look at what activity influences choice. Uh, and so what we found for um, the parts of the brain that were predicting choice, it really came down to... Um, this emotional reaction, negative emotional reaction to this proposed destructive land use uh, in the anterior insula. That predicted that people actually put their money where their mouth was. This was not, uh, it was unlike the uh, contingent valuation studies, it was actually incentive compatible. So people did have to donate. Uh, it wasn't just uh, purely hypothetical. Uh, and so we also had um, found that basically, the more people were pro-environmental, Uh, The more they expressed pro-environmental attitudes in surveys outside of uh, the scanner, um, the stronger their anterior insula was uh, responding. And the the more rational uh, subjective value calculations, when that was more active, uh, people were more selfish actually. So you're kind of calculating value for keeping money uh, for yourself instead of helping the environment. And so that really kind of drives... Um, bringing home that it's more of an emotional decision. You need to make people uh, resonate emotionally to protect these natural spaces and that's why what you know, Jay is doing with Blue Mind is, is such an important thing. Trying to create those, those bridges, making people more pro-environmental, more likely to, to give, more likely to feel. Right? So um, That's basically the kind of work we're doing uh, right now. We're doing a bunch of different uh, neuroimaging studies uh, in addition to that, all about environmental issues. Uh, So if you wanna learn more, you can feel free to email me. Um, And I just wanted to thank, I work with uh, Brian Knutson, who's a neuroeconomist at Stanford. Uh, He also studies things like uh, the neural basis for uh, compassion uh, in monks, and so that's what that picture is. Uh, They're getting, they scanned a whole bunch of monks for that study, and then just uh, research assistance and, and funding help, and thanks to Jay for finding me out. Yeah.
1: Um, y'all got that? <laughs> you got his email address. <laughs> load it, load it up. He'll send you lots of great PDFs to read, and you can ramp up and be, be a, um, a neuroscience hobbyist if that turns out to be your thing. Uh, Kevin is uh, also a neuroscientist at, at Stanford and, and um, we've gotten to know each other recently through the sharing of the Blue Mind book and the conversation and, and uh, he liked the book and uh, wrote a, a nice review of it. But the interesting thing about Kevin is that he's uh, um, a, I don't know if he'll, he'll tell this about himself so I'm gonna do it here. He's a surfer, likes to surf big waves, he's a neuroscientist, and he's also a record-holding swimmer, and he was captain, or co-captain, I guess, of the, of the Princeton University swim team uh, while he was a student there. So he's um, part fish, or part dolphin, or part um, uh, kelp, I guess, might <laughs> be the key. Yeah, Maybe all of the above, and uh, loves the water, loves the ocean, and also loves to think, so we got like the wolf man, uh, the fish man, <laughs> and who both studied the brain, and then we'll we'll find out maybe an aqua woman down there. <laughs> but uh, Kevin's going to tell us sort of about his his really interesting work. So thanks, Kevin. Kevin
4: All right, uh, thanks, Jay. Uh, okay, cool. Um, so I'm Kevin, and um, as Jay said, I'm a brain scientist at Stanford and also at the Institute for Applied Neuroscience which is a nonprofit that both Melina and I um, founded recently. And you can find us online at scienceforgood.org. But when I'm not measuring and thinking about the brain, I am a surfer and a swimmer. And something that Jay didn't tell you is I actually started competing in swimming when I was four years old. So water is really ingrained into my brain. So when Jay asked me to come speak to you today, I was really excited to share how the brain sees water and helps us bring and reach, bring us and, and reach our blue mind state. So I'm going to start with this image that you've seen in the um, last presentations because I think it's really, really perfect to illustrate a bunch of issues that scientists are presently trying to tackle about how the brain codes both what we see and what we perceive. And those are different things. Um, so... First things first, just yell out what pops out for you from this image. Marble, blue, blue, marble, exactly. So blue, blue really pops out from the black and white background. It's really, really salient. And one of the reasons why I love science is because I can say statements like this that are counterintuitive to what you think. And that is, color actually does not exist. Color is something that your brain creates. So you can look around this room and there's a lot of color. There's a lot of color on the stage, and we're on a panel about a blue mind. But color does not exist. So your brain interprets wavelengths of light, and as a result, you perceive color. But color's not a thing, it's not an entity. My shade of blue or my preferred shade of blue is different than yours, than what you perceive, which is different than everyone's shade of blue up here. And though I use color as an example, everyone's brain reconstructs our world actively and specific to you, but it does it in a predictable manner. So what does that actually mean? It means that your brain is a mathematical magician and a precision artist. It actively creates things to make sense of your visual world for you and to also make sense of your place in it. Otherwise, visual illusions would not work. So when I advance this slide, what I want you to do is move your eyes around the image to activate the illusion. And if there are any people who are afraid of snakes in the audience, please close your eyes. You ready? This is also why vision science is cool because you can do things like this. So here we go. So move your eyes around the image. Are the snakes rotating? They should be rotating, okay. So how does your brain do this? The cool thing about this is the pixels in the image are actually just static pixels. There's no motion in this image. And when you move your eyes, your brain is actually actively creating this motion. So this is what I mean that your brain is a mathematical magician. It's actually creating something that does not exist. And how does it do that? It does it by breaking down information, processing it separately, and then stitching it back together. And this is important for the rest of the talk, and it's really important for how we reach our blue mind. So even as you read those words or you look at the text, the snakes can still move above and below. And how can that be? It's because your brain does this every single time. Every time you process a visual stimulus, it breaks down information, it processes it separately, and it stitches it back together. And it does this through a divide and cooperate principle. And I'm going to use the brain and Isaac Newton to help explain that principle. So here's a brain. Um, the left image is a right hemisphere. It's on the outer view of the right hemisphere. And then the image on the right is as if you're we just flip that image and you're looking in the inside view of that hemisphere. And the orange shading is where I spend my days. That's visual cortex. I run around there and try and figure out what the neurons are doing. Um, and just as a, another piece of information, visual cortex is about 20% of your brain. So that's a lot of neural resources that are allocated to processing our visual world. And this is Isaac Newton. Um, and this demonstration was actually taken from a or borrowed from a paper by Brian Wandel um, at Stanford. Um, so Isaac Newton's on the left. And if you were to stare at the center of Isaac Newton, the image on the right is a zoomed-in portion of visual cortex, and that's how Isaac Newton is actually would be projected in your brain. And what I want you to get from this image is that Isaac Newton's hair is more anterior than his eye. And this means that a different part of visual cortex is processing his hair than his eye. And this is a really, really important principle for the divide aspect of the divide and cooperate principle. Where divide here is that separate pieces of cortex have different jobs and process different information. So the hair is being processed in one place, the eye is being processed in another, and they can be processed in parallel and then stitched back together in your visual system. And this is the cooperate piece where the separate pieces of cortex actually still talk to one another, they help each other out, um, and they they work together to give you a coherent image of your visual world. So this is why the words can be static and the snakes can still move. Because there's different parts of your brain that are processing the words that are processing the snakes. So with these basic principles in mind, we can come back to this image and we can reassess it with this divide and cooperate principle. So this blue marble is actually an object. And based off the divide and cooperate principle, that blue marble should be processed in individual pieces of your cortex, individual networks would process that marble independent of other features of the scene, like the water, the rocks, the mountainscape, and her face and her hands and so forth. That's exactly what happens. Your brain, the person next to you's brain, you have similar networks that are processing this image, but it doesn't happen in one area. It happens in multiple areas and multiple networks, and it happens in milliseconds. You do this effortlessly, but it requires dozens of visual areas in your brain. So to show you some of these areas, I'm going to show you my brain. This is my brain. I've spent many hours in the scanner. I've mapped out dozens of areas of my brain. It's actually really fun. Um, I've scanned my parents. I've scanned my sister. I've scanned all sorts of people. Um, so again, the top image is the right hemisphere an outer view. Um, and one thing to take note here is the brain is typically crinkled up like I showed you a couple of before. And here I've puffed it out so you can actually see the different areas that are actually in those indentations. Um, and the, the bottom image is as if you were looking up um, from underneath. So if you were looking through my chin, you could see that that is how my brain would look. Um, and in general, I've included some names up there from people who have pioneered this type of research um, to map out these areas of the brain and figure out what um, their actual contributions are to perception. So if you were to Google any of those people, you would see some really fascinating research that would Really impress you. So, in cyan here, I've plotted um, these areas that process objects. So, in those areas, in your visual cortex, they are processing that blue marble. Now, based off the divide and cooperate principle, um, you should have other areas that are processing other aspects of that scene, like the rocks and the water and the mountainscape. That's exactly what happens in these blue areas. Uh, they're anatomically separate and they're still processing are contributing to the processing of that um, image, but they're processing different parts. And the divide and cooperate principle continues even further with these green regions that are actually processing her hand and her hand position and how it's gripping that marble. And continues even further with regions in red that are actually processing her face and facial expression. Now, this image is a static image, and our world is obviously heavily dynamic with lots of motion. And there's another network that actually processes visual motion, um, some of which I've included here in black. Each of you have these areas. Each of you have these areas in a similar location of your brain. You could predict the organization of the person next to you based off of just staring at this image. That's pretty damn impressive. Our world is really, really, really dynamic There's a lot of input, especially with all the technology that's happening. And this means that even though our brains independently develop from one another, they actually implement very similar solutions from one brain to the next. And what the brain actually does is it generates an elegant architecture to support this breaking down, processing separately, and stitching back together process that I described about the divide and cooperate principle. So what does this mean for your blue mind? I just told you how your visual cortex is organized in a particular image. Basically, the same breaking down and stitching back together principle that I described happens across cortical systems and allows you to reach your blue mind. So though I use vision as an example, this breaking down and stitching back together process happens across your senses. And it's the integration of the dividing and cooperating across your senses that help you reach your blue mind. And then once you add in the stuff beyond your senses, so emotions, arousal, movement, and so forth, they contribute and enhance even further to that blue mind state. So in a sense, a blue mind is a whole-brain workout. It requires multiple cortical systems working together to process information fast and effortlessly, by dividing and cooperating to bring meaning and coherence to your visual world. But it's also important to <laughs> it's also important to remember that your blue mind, despite these commonalities, your blue mind is your own. So the world is your lab and be your own blue mind scientist. This is me, this is me surfing. Surfing works for me but it might not work for you, just like you have a different shade of blue than I do. So get out into the real world, figure out what makes your brain buzz blue, and go from there. But hopefully I've given you some basic principles of how the brain sees water and how it helps contribute to that blue mind state and how to get there. And some of the things we've covered are your brain actively creates your visual world for you. It creates blue... It interprets shapes, water, faces and hands and so forth in different bits of your brain. And it creates your perception of the world by decomposing information, processing it separately in these different networks that are organized in a very, very elegant fashion and then stitching it all back together in some coherent way. And through this, it creates your blue mind and your blue mind is your own. So I, I work with a lot of people, and I, wanna, I always like to take time to just thank them. So first on the left is um, the Ian team, so Melina, along with Suzanne and Rick and Greg. Um, and you, again, you can find us uh, at scienceforgood.org. Um, and I have a lot of neuroscience collaborators from around the world. Um, Kelly Grill Specter and Brian Mundell I work with at Stanford. Charlie Gross is one of the godfathers, or grandfathers, I should say, of my field. Um, and he was the first person who ever actually gave me a chance. I plopped myself in his office and pitched an idea for an experiment, and he decided that it was worth doing. So I, I, I wouldn't be here without, on this stage without Charlie. Um, Carl Zillis and Katrina Muntz are in Germany, um, and they're just brilliant neuroscientists. And Bruno Rosian is in Belgium, and he allows me to scan patients who are missing parts of their brain. And that's also, it, it's been a real trip to uh, see how much the brain can um, sustain and how resilient it is. So thanks for your time.
1: I, I'm going to put Melina on the spot here. And uh, um, she works um, closely with Kevin and, and at Stanford and at, at the... Uh, at IAN, I-A-N, Institute for Applied Neuroscience, and has a a fascinating range of of interests, um, including the application of neuroscience to law, uh, education, leadership. Um, You can kind of go down the list, but um, I want to ask her for, without thinking too much, first impression to this, this flow that has been headed in your direction, for the past hour or so, All right?
5: You you should know better than to tell a neuroscientist not to think. <laughs> um, no, thank you, Jay. This was just beautiful. To each of you speakers, this has just been a fascinating journey through the brain and mind and heart. And um, as someone who approaches neuroscience from a very, um, I think, diverse perspective, um, I think everything that you've that you've introduced to the group here is Is so incredibly important. Outreach and creativity and how we, how we teach our kids how to interact and engage with the environment is just one of the, one of the key pieces for kind of social, emotional and, um, and kind of cognitive development. So what you're doing is just absolutely incredible. And then Nick, what you're doing, Pioneering environmental neuroscience is just so absolutely important, and I think is really um, setting the stage for a whole new awareness of how how our brains are impacted by the environment. And um, and and actually, I, I specifically wore this for you. We've got a um, this is a. I don't know, some kind of shell that has what's called biophilic design, which is um, something that environmental neuroscientists are just now starting to investigate. What's the impact on the brain of, of... being able to see things that are in nature, but in our in our environment that we interact with every day um, and how that can actually expand your decision-making capacity and how that can actually allow you, um, as a person who spends a lot of time indoors, even, even in this conversation, we're still indoors right now, um, but by just having some green and some blue and some things that really stimulate um, our kind of natural capacity that allows us to kind of, come back into who we are and um and really access, I think, more of the brain. And then of course, Kevin, what you are doing is just absolutely fabulous, but I'm incredibly biased. Um he's also my sweetheart, so I'm even more biased. <laughs> um, <laughs> why are you saying you're available? <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> Um, no, I just think this this multidimensional and multi um, interdisciplinary perspective of how we navigate through our world, um, and how we do it from a very from a cognitive perspective, from an integrated perspective in the environment, and how we do it with everyone else in in our world, how we connect one on one, and how we communicate, and then how we make decisions based on who we are and how we show up in the world, I think is an incredibly important conversation to have. And so the fact that we're having this multidimensional conversation, I think is really, really beautiful. Um, One last thing I would say is um, I do also um, study the impact of technology on the brain and particularly um, looking at what is happening um, as we multitask with lots of technology and um, what the... Not necessarily what the consequences are, because we don't we don't yet know what the consequences are. Um, but just seeing the results of the data showing that the more that we interact with technology, the more distracted we seem to be, um, and the consequences for how we show up, um, I think really brings us more toward really needing to get back into our blue mind and getting ourselves out into the world and out near the ocean and near the rivers and near these expansive places to really help support us in this kind of push-pull um, dance that we're having with our um, constantly evolving um, world that includes technology but will never not include our environment. So I don't know if that's what you were looking for. but
1: Very, very good. Thank you. Well, one of the things we, we discussed uh, earlier today was how eco-literacy and neuro-literacy... Uh, in, in education can and should, and I would say must go hand in hand. So as we uh, educate um, about our environment and our surroundings, to do that through the lens of the work that you're doing just makes it richer. And to take the knowledge of our brains and make sure that it's not only in the hands of people who are using it Kind of clandestinely as a, a, a an additional marketing tool, but to to open that up and be transparent uh, as much as possible from uh, the earliest age uh, possible, so that we we all grow up with a, a growing, expanding, deepening understanding of our of our own brains. And I ask young people sometimes, um, who should own your nostalgia and first of all they go whoa weird question nobody's ever asked me that and then they think about it and mostly the answer is I should own my my own nostalgia good that's a great answer Um, but who does own it right now who do you or who is has got some control over it and that gets a little more more complex uh, do the words Facebook or Apple or Coca-Cola or other big brands come to mind? Um, and I and I talk to my 12-year-old daughter, and I and I say, I really hope your answer is does not include the words Justin Bieber, um, because that gives me shivers to think that he might have uh, a, a piece of your nostalgia, but as marketing gets more powerful and uses these neurological tools, that becomes more and more of a possibility and, in fact, a reality uh, right now. So the more we can take back that knowledge of our our brains, the better, I think. So eco-literacy and neuro-literacy hand-in-hand are are incredibly important ideas. And so I've got a, a, a set of questions that I want to Kind of fire through and then I definitely want to have time for the questions from everybody here whos who's joined us. Uh, the, um, they're very simple, provocative questions and uh, and I think some of, some are familiar with them. So question number one and I'll just send, we'll send the microphone across. What do you think you know about Blue Mind from experience or practice? that hasn't been proven or studied by science. So what do you think you know about Blue Mind from experience or practice that hasn't been proven or studied by science? Just a response to that.
2: Um, I work in a computer lab that is about 15 by 15 with no windows and one door. And this summer I made a decision that I would kind of evict myself from the room and take the kids outside, and I've been watching how they react to being outside and talking to them about it. We actually had a talk about Justin Beaver. Um, But I think that um, kids are really um, kept from their blue mind. They don't have the control to get out. The adults control that. And so I really think that we should look at how to make sure that kids have access. um, And... Um, all kids not just the kids that can um, advocate for themselves but kids who perhaps cannot advocate for themselves
3: Uh, so I feel like everything uh, about Blue Mind is unproven right now which makes it such a rich uh, area for uh, study you know trying to understand what how we resonate with uh, our environment and how that impacts our everything from our mood uh, to our you know, uh, day-to-day emotions and decisions uh, and how we can harness that right, to drive uh, decisions that are more in sync with that uh, environment. And so I think there's a whole uh, range of uh, areas to explore there that will be really rich in the, the next couple decades.
4: Um, so I think... Um the best illustration of this question would be: I was trying to edit code. So, you know, a lot of brain brain analyses involves coding and computer science, and I was editing code um, to come up with a particular analysis. And for days it wouldn't work. For days it wouldn't work, and it was just you know beating my head against the desk. And then I went surfing, and I was staring out into the horizon, and I got this hit to add an if statement on line 74. (laughs) So I went to the parking lot, logged into my machine at work, added an if statement, and my code ran. So I think there is this, um, you know, what we would refer to in neuroscience as top-down inhibition. Like, you can get your, you know, on everyday life moving around, you can really inhibit just natural ways of thinking. It's not necessarily creativity, but you're just looping through the same sort of process and I think being at least for me I don't know how it is for everyone in the audience but being in the water where all of the natural patterns are happening it kind of just frees up your own mind to find the pattern that you're looking for in your own mental space and I don't know yet how to quantify it but it is quantifiable so we'll figure it out
5: (laughs) thanks Um, Well, I think I'm going to have to piggyback off of that because I I feel like my my answer would be very, very similar. I don't know that um, I've ever experienced being able to... um solve a coding issue after being in the water, but I do find that every time I need to make a major life decision, I put myself on the island of Kauai, and I specifically put myself in one little bay, on one little beach, where I can look out into the horizon of the ocean, and it actually, it turns out to be the the same bay that Bethany Hamilton got her arm bitten off by a shark, so I no longer surf there. (laughs) But I do put myself there every time I need to make a really big decision because what I find is that being in the presence of that expansive ocean space, I connect back to myself and I connect to who I am at a fundamental level that allows me to kind of step outside of the circumstances and see who I am and how I show up in the world without um, having to be so Um, as you say, looping in the current circumstances. So I think the the decision-making process, so again, piggybacking off what what, um, Nick is saying, um, getting yourself out into nature, um, getting our kids out into nature, I think is um, a really beautiful way to to allow them um, to kind of reconnect with who they are um, so that they can make better decisions and make decisions that are more um, aligned with their own internal state rather than being influenced by their environment or by social pressures or other sorts of things
1: i think we probably many people in this room uh, recognize that and live in a way that brings as much experience in nature as possible into our lives but i think we also recognize that many 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 people of all ages don't and are are living a life that is very foreign from um, immersing themselves completely in water. And I I think about people who may really have never had an experience, the experience of being completely underwater, maybe ever, which is remarkable and, and probably quite true. Uh, because of access to water of appropriate quality and depth uh, perhaps perception that they aren't supposed to do that for a variety of reasons and a variety of cultures um, and so or perhaps because of pollution of of the water that they could have gotten into where they live and so just that simple thing of being the feeling of that I think many of us probably know well being completely underwater, just holding your breath and going underwater for a moment. Uh, not, have, maybe never experiencing that is a possibility. and something that I think we can work to overcome. So next question, what blue mind research question do you think would be most useful to pursue? And I know what Nick is going to say. He's going to say all of them. everything is possible and all of them are interesting but if you were to pick one what what comes to
2: mind um i wonder about um children and early experiences because as an artist i know when you get older you look at the things that um you work on and you you usually track them all the way back to when you were a child and I think that the thing that I know now is that childhood doesn't happen the way it used to. Um, So I wonder about how you could use the neuroscience to prove that children deserve childhood. It's a sad question, but... Uh,
3: So I think um, looking at things around our own carbon footprint and our own Impact on the planet and trying to understand uh, how we can create uh, architect choice through policy decisions or what have you um, to make it easier for people uh, to live a more uh, minimalistic life, right? Whether that is um, taking the social pressure off of materialism, right, and reframing uh, the way that uh, people are drawn to. Uh, different uh, materials and products right or whether it's uh, home residential energy use right and there's a lot of work uh, in the Bay Area some of you may be getting uh, you know your your bills uh, electricity bills uh, with little behavioral economics tweaks to show how you're performing relative to your neighbors and all, all that stuff and smiley faces or brownie faces uh, based on that um, and so trying to figure out uh, which of these things speak to people and um, which ways are, are most effective and uh, most persuasive, I think, would be a good, good place to start.
4: So I spoke a lot about the um, breaking down, processing separately and stitching back together process to get to the blue mind. I really want to understand the stitching back together process. From a scientific standpoint, I can come up with many different experiments to break down what a blue mind would look like in the brain, but going from, and many neuroscientists believe that the mind is what the brain does. So there is this transformation where you go from brain to mind, and that's presumably that stitching back together process. So I understand that we need to understand the components first before we get to that transformation, but really I think that's what we're all after. Like we could break down what a blue mind state would be in each of the different cortical systems, but to really get that full effect that intuitively we all understand, I think is gonna be really hard, but worth the time and effort.
5: So since Nick didn't say this, then I will. (laughs) All of them. (laughs) Um, No, I do think that there are two I think there are two probably primary research questions that um, I think could be the lowest hanging fruit. And I also think there's a population that um, that is the lowest hanging fruit. I think our kids are our, our, our future. And I think if you could understand the impact of water on the social-emotional learning in our kids and the ability to make good decisions um, with our kids, I think that would be just one of the most profound impacts that we as researchers could really make in the world. Yeah.
1: So I I, want to say that this sounds like a very mellow blue mind conversation and that little run right there was, was fairly radical if you get right down to it. Take back childhood, reframe materialism and dig deeper into consciousness is what we're talking about here. That's am- that's amazing. And to have a group of neuroscientists digging into some of the most important and profound themes that we've been talking about all weekend, uh, let alone for the past 25 years here at, at these Bioneers gatherings is, is cool to see when, when advocacy and passion and spirituality and science all kind of pull together with art and, and become this, this kind of conversation. So that's, that's why we're here. I, I think what we um, do very quickly and then we'll turn it over to, to all of you is, is ask the last question, which is, what one thing would you hope every person in the world mm-hmm. understood about Blue Mind?
2: That you have it, you can use it, and you should go do it.
3: <laughs> uh, I guess just keeping um, vivid and in memory, even when you're not in nature, the impact that it's had on you, right? And and using that to shape uh, your choices, even when you're you're not engaged in there and out in Yosemite or out uh, on the coast or or what have you.
4: Um, I think I would say that the blue mind keeps the brain stable. As much as um, plasticity is a high, you know, highly used term right now with lumosity and brain training and everything, stability is really important for your brain. Stability is what keeps you going. And it's really hard to change long-range connections in your brain. It takes a lot of neurobiological energy to do that. So a blue mind actually increases the stability, not even so much as the plasticity, but stability is really important for the resilient aspects. So I think that's something that I...
5: I would hope that each one of you would walk away today knowing that your life is your lab and that everything that you do in your life is an experiment. You get to go check and see what water does to your brain. You get to go see how your heart shifts, how your mind shifts, how your relationships shift when you're next to water, when you're in the forest, when you're, doing, when you're in front of your computer, when you're in your house versus outside. What I would love for you to know is that your life is your lab and that you are a life scientist and that you get to take total and complete control over how your life shows up and how it unfolds
1: wonderful so i say we fund all of those ideas that we've discussed um if anybody has their checkbook with them please feel free to write a check to any of these wonderful people and let's um let's hear from you i'm not sure how we're doing on on time but if uh if we've got some burning questions please back there raise your hand and stand up and just shout it out because that would be There's the easiest.
0: Phones,
1: there are some mics, but I think. Okay. I don't know if this is even
0: possible, but has any research been done in the neonatal state
1: where you are living in the blue environment? Great question. So, that first nine months that we all were swimming around, were floating around in the dark underwater. <laughs> yeah, or it's not dark. Yeah, quite, quite. Um, I'm going to defer to that end of, of the uh, the room. Neonatal neuroscience.
4: I don't know anything off the top of my head, but I do know that fetal imaging, it does exist, and it is a, a new field, and it's mostly about how the brain and the, the fetus is actually developing more so than you know what the different um, or how other factors may influence what's going on at the present time, like... environment. Um, I think they have done something with the mother's voice versus other voices and and those types of questions, but they haven't really gone into the the deeper... It's a great question. I would do it right now if I could, um, but we'll have to come up with a way to operationalize it.
5: Um, Let me just... Um, tag in here and just say that um, one one thing that's really exciting about the neonatal, neonatal brain um, is that it is this kind of rapidly expanding um, gel of goodness. And um, one thing that happens as you then go out of the blue mind state of the womb um, is that your brain then starts to stabilize. So it's this—it's this really, really highly dynamic, highly kind of beautifully developing system when it's in the womb, and then it needs to figure out what's stable in the environment and how can I how can I stabilize my um, my structures so that I can navigate effectively within this environment. So it then becomes this prediction machine, um, which, as Kevin was saying, it. Um, then allows us to to um, create kind of the stability of the brain. But um, it's just highly dynamic and highly just gorgeous in the womb.
1: And if you're a, a young, budding neuroscientist, this is probably a very uh, productive place to be jotting down your uh, your notes about your PhD thesis. Uh, <laughs> I would just recommend that if, if that's your path, these... These ideas are... We can start
4: writing the grant now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Let's go over to that microphone.
6: Okay. Um, I was once reading about perception and how um, at, a long time ago in the Peace Corps they did a slideshow for women trying to show um, childhood care and at the end the women came out and they had basically, they were like, the colors were amazing and stuff. And they hadn't really seen two-dimensional things as three-dimensional so I guess my question is have we done anything or do you know anything about how cultures because I, I mean we taught we pretty much see in general our our minds rebuild things similarly but do cultures change like what different groups see or is there anything along those lines because
4: yeah that's a great question so. And actually, it relates to blue in particular. So um, our, how we think is really shaped by the words that we have to describe it. So there's many cultures, and I didn't put this in the talk, but I was going to. There are many cultures that don't have a word for blue, for example. So how can you have a blue mind if you don't have a word for blue? Or you have two words for blue then now what do you do, right? So that was actually a question that I was going to pose to all of you because these factors do influence how you think. And in those cultures, at least from what I know, um, there was a study manipulating uh, or looking at how um, Russians respond to colors of blue because they have two words for blue, and they actually respond differently both in accuracy and reaction time compared to other languages, um, and, and this will also extend into how your brain is organized with um, word form patches or language networks and those sorts of things. So I, I would say the cultural effects are the biggest for language because you can actually measure all these different things in these different populations.
1: One of the things that we we discuss um, broadly in interpreting the the blue mind conversation is that you've got your, your biology. So, you, you know, your neurophysiology and your genetics um, that you bring, you also have your culture. You bring that and you've got your lifetime of personal experience. And so my mom, for example, is afraid to put her face in water. She loves to sit on the second floor balcony and look out over the water. And we'll sit there in that spot for a week, maybe with a margarita or two, but that's her sweet spot. She does not want to get her face wet in the ocean or in a lake because of a, a, child, a set of childhood experiences that gave her a fear of water. So culturally, they, you know, they grew up swimmers. Biologically, she you know, was made of water and spent her time in the womb uh, and had a passion for water until several experiences happened. One of which, by the way, I'll tell you, just because it's funny, um, she was on her honeymoon with my dad and they went to Hawaii and he, he somehow uh, stuck a, a, a baby octopus down the back of her bikini. <laughs> Young men, take, take note. <laughs> she never went back into the ocean for 50 years until their 50th anniversary and my daughters and I got her into the ocean and got her to float on her back, and we supported her. And I have, I've never seen her so relaxed in my life. But it took 50 years for her to get back in the ocean because, yeah, because my, my girls made her feel safe. Yeah, so I'll introduce her to my dad sometime. You give him a hard time. So let's go over here.
0: I'm happy to see that one of the panel has enjoyed the beauties of Kauai. I live on Kauai, and I'm fortunate to have uh, what I call the birdhouse, which is a gazebo where I can see a 180-degree view of the waters of the ocean. I will be up there every morning before dawn and watch the day happen. When I do that, nothing bad can happen to me all the rest of the day. It's incredible. And there are certain times when I can't make that. And I notice that my day is not the same. My spirit is diminished. And I wonder how that works in a neuroscience uh, atmosphere.
1: We'll give it to them, but I, I, I'm, am I interpreting that as an invitation to the birdhouse? I don't know. I mean, how many beds you got? How much you know, hammocks? What? Come custom?
5: on over. Right. We've got
0: lots of visits. See you soon.
5: Kauai is beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. That is a beautiful, beautiful question, um, and it's a question we don't we don't have the answer to yet. But again, to budding PhD students, we pose it to you. Um, The expansiveness, the idea that um, you put yourself in a place that has a wide, expansive view or large, um, you have lots of space over your head like this room here. there have been studies to show that that increases creativity, that increases your ability to think in an abstract way, that increases your ability to be more kind of synergistic in your in your thinking, less linear, sequential. So, if anyone um, is designing um, a space for their employees and you want them to start to think in a more expansive and um, of abstract way, put them in a room like this that has large ceilings, and likewise if you want to put them in a room to code and write and be more more focused put them in a room with low ceilings. <laughs> um, so so that's kind of the the kind of budding, budding field of environmental neuroscience, looking at the impact of our environment on our brain. But it's really, really, really early days. In fact, there's probably only a handful of studies that have shown this and haven't even shown the impact on the brain. So maybe Nick can weigh in and Kevin, too.
4: Um, I would go at it from a different direction and I think just based off the fact that you have a habit that you really enjoy and you really love and that that will release dopamine, right? So you love it so much, you start your day with it, it really charges you. When you don't do it, I think you would actually get a dip in your dopamine and that's actually why it's affecting you. So um, that's just a, just speculation from what the neurobiology of, of your habit might be doing.
3: Yeah, so there's really early uh, work at Stanford done by another one of my colleagues where he was, he was basically looking at if you have people go out in nature and, and walk around uh, versus if they go uh, take a walk in a more urban environment, like how does that impact them? Um, and the reason why uh, they want to look at this uh, from like a more pragmatic point of view is if you can quantify that there are you know, mental health benefits uh, or productivity benefits from this, uh, you can patch that in uh, to what is uh, called ecosystem services, right? So, if you're trying to again get at that value of nature thing, and you know, get coming up with reasons uh, for people to not develop natural spaces, uh, if you can quantify this stuff more more keenly, you might get more people on your side of the argument. And uh, to my knowledge, I think it ended up being less uh, of a mood concrete impact, but actually performance increase on some cognitive tasks. Uh, so uh, again, going back to that productivity.
5: Yeah. Thanks, so that, that just triggered some, um, some other data that have, that have been um, looked at widespread in, in um, the educational system, where if you look at kids that have a view of nature rather than a view of an urban environment, it actually increases their educational outcomes by, I think, 20% or something, and I think both math and verbal learning. Um, and likewise, um, for kids, I think this was a, a study of like 10,000 kids across the whole um, United States, that kids who were learning in the, the sunniest classrooms actually learned, I think, 25% faster on um, on math tests and 20% faster on... on uh, Uh, verbal tests as well. Yeah, no, I can send them to you. But it's also, the really nice thing is, even though we really want to get our kids out into nature, um, sometimes we can't, right? The business case isn't always there, even though we're now starting to quantify it. So even just a projected view of nature, so even if it's just a poster on your classroom wall, that actually um, impacts the same benefit or um, imparts the same benefit. And likewise, if you give a kid a video game that has greenery or bluery in it, um, it actually, um, it has been shown to decrease ADHD um, symptoms and also to to exert the same amount of impact as well. It's pretty exciting.
1: It all makes me think about the conversation about healing spaces and healing places and we all have them, whether they're, in a, bird, in a beautiful birdhouse overlooking the ocean or, or wherever they may be, and we can go there physically, and we can also go there in our imaginations. But the important thing is that you, you have an answer to that question, what is your healing place, uh, and that we all learn, learn what that is. So let's go over here. We've got another question on this side. Yeah, thank you. Well, this has been a really
0: wonderful conference. And I think they've saved the best for last. This is just so beautiful. And the possibilities that you really invoke um, are altogether, you know, just um, really extraordinary. Uh, so, my question is is there anything um, for each of you that is not quantifiable? Is there something that is just purely, you know,
1: that you could say, yeah, that we can't? That's my question.
4: That's a great question, and I, maybe I'm a little optimistic, but I, I think there's—you can always quantify something, and I, it take—it might take a while to get there. I mean, you know, Jay had brought, brought up consciousness. I mean, people have, you know, been trying to quantify where consciousness happens in the brain and speculating about where it happens, and that's a hard one. I don't—I'm I'm not discouraged enough that it will never be quantifiable. Um, but I I do think that at some point we will get closer to understanding it and we might not have the actual you know this is the formula responsible for um, consciousness or something that would be hard to quantify but I think all those steps and building blocks to work towards it are just as important because you're getting closer and you're building the knowledge base for the next generation of people to expand on it so I think you can always quantify something and as long as you quantify something and get closer to the end goal um, for other people to contribute to, I think that's just as important as the end goal of quantifying your big question.
5: Let me qualify that, qualify your quantification. Um, I would just remind people that, or I often have to remind myself that anything that we experience we experience it because something's happening in our brain to allow us to experience that. But what that feels like, how that how that shows up for us, that's that's hard to quantify. We can quantify that ourselves by again being our own scientists, but and we can we can peek into kind of the neural manifestations of what's changing to allow us to have these experiences Um, and we can eavesdrop and then quantify that but again I think what what Kevin is saying is we still just because we can measure it doesn't mean we can understand it so I think that's one of the most fascinating and, and exciting things about being a scientist is that sure we've got all these really cool fancy techniques to measure what's going on in the brain and in the body but there's still such a mystery of life that we get to kind of piece apart and puzzle through and look at the poetry of that I think it keeps us with a job throughout our whole life.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's really, um, it goes back to the, the stitching together, right? So uh, it is very difficult to get at how something uh, feels on the whole with any any degree of, of vividness uh, to an individual so really what we're picking up on is kind of like the pale shadows you know on the wall right the just impressions and reflections of of what's going on there but uh, I'm also an optimist so I think over time our measurements will get better we'll have better ideas and closer proxies for different um, parts of you know, our, our, our consciousness than what we have now uh, using fMRI. But it's going to be a gradual process, and we may never get to the actual, uh, you know, fully vivid uh, things that we're feeling and, and thinking that may be uh, impossible technologically for many yep. generations.
1: I will add, um, take it out of the neuroscience for a moment, in 1996 and into 1997, our team put a satellite transmitter on a loggerhead sea turtle and tracked her from Mexico to Japan. And nobody had ever tracked an animal across an ocean ocean basin before using satellite telemetry, swimming the entire way 7,000 miles. Now that sounds completely unrelated to this conversation, but that simple contribution to our, our knowledge of the ocean and of ocean life and of sea turtles and of migration and of possibilities generated modestly, conservatively estimating maybe a, a thousand more questions that we had no answers to. So each time we take a small step forward in quantifying, even getting a, you know a, an advance in our knowledge, we get an explosion of understanding of new things we know nothing about every single time. So as we add to the island of knowledge a grain of sand and the island gets a little bit bigger, guess what happens? The beach gets longer. That beach front gets longer and longer and bigger and bigger with every grain of sand. And that's what's so exciting about about the, about the process of science, is it adds grains of sand to the island and the island gets bigger and the, the beach gets longer.
2: So I, I wonder about um, intuition and spirit and fate. And my story is that um, I gave a blue marble. I sent a blue marble to Alaska. And that blue marble was given to Dune Lankard. And so when he was standing up here on the stage, I said to the person I came with, that's Dune Lankard, He has a blue marble. And then he came and he sat down in the chair in front of me. In this whole big theater, out of all of the chairs, he had to sit like literally in front of me so I could tap him on the shoulder. And how does that happen? Is it like turtles?
1: <laughs> I hope you're not asking me to answer that question. So I, I, let's do, we have, let's do two more questions and then we'll we'll break from here if that's okay. So we'll go over on the left side and then we'll come over here, unless that's line
4: Wait a okay. Um, I've come across the information that when people are using the GPS all the time, all the time, we're, those of us who do that lose our neural pathways for finding directions and reading maps and stuff like that. Do you have any input about that in regards to the blue mind or to verify whether that's true or not?
1: Well, I'll, I'll begin and then maybe pass it over, but um, the Nobel Prize in, in medicine was just won by three neuroscientists who study specifically that, that area of neuroscience. So they, they study um, our neurological GPS system and won the Nobel Prize for their work. And it turns out it, you know, we, we do learn to orient ourselves in space, and we create mental maps, there's a particular kind of neuron that, there's a couple of kinds, maybe more than a couple, uh, involved in in doing that activity. And if we don't do it and learn it and we'll wire ourselves to do it well, because we're looking like this at a screen rather than looking at um, space and environment around us, uh, it, it's like playing an instrument, I suppose, you, you just won't develop that skill. And when you're run, you run out of battery, uh, you're lost. And uh, so turning it off and going for walks around in a new place and just with your eyes open and your head up is, is a good practice. And certainly, we have been talking about young people a lot, you know, long periods of time with, without that, that tool uh, are probably a really good idea.
3: Uh, so th- there is one um, study that comes to mind that you guys may know more about, but uh, where taxi drivers had more, uh, more a larger area of their brain for spatial memory uh, because they had to navigate so much. Um, so you you do you know rewire to to more ser- better serve what you're you're actually using. Um, so there's going to be that that effect for sure.
4: And Nick's exactly right. It was actually London taxi cab drivers. So,
5: and actually, it was my my uncle. Actually, was one of those London <laughs> <laughs> taxi drivers. Um, so the really fascinating. So I study memory. That's my that's my main um, area of of research. And it turns out there's a couple of really cool things about memory. So the part of the brain that allows us to remember things um, is also the part of the brain that allows us to navigate spatially navigate through our world um, which is exactly the part of the brain that um, these three um, recent Nobel laureates um, were studying but the other really cool thing is and exactly as, as Nick and Kevin said um, these taxi drivers have bigger hippocampi hippocampuses and um, But they didn't know whether it was because they had larger hippocampi that they became London taxi drivers because they had these great navigational skills. But actually, they did some follow-up studies to show that it was actually the the act of continuing to navigate throughout um, their world that actually increased the size of their hippocampus. Because your hippocampus is one of only two parts of your brain that can actually grow new neurons throughout your adult life. So... Exactly what Tay was saying, where, um, if there aren't, there aren't a ton of places where use it or lose it is a principle in your brain, but, um, in your memory, that is actually one of, one of the places. The other really cool thing about the hippocampus is not only that it allows you to remember things and also navigate through your world, but it's also the part of the brain that allows you to prospectively think about your future. So, people who have, yeah, so the more that you can, um, well, and we this is where I'm speculating, but the better your the better your hippocampus is, um, let me say it this way, where I'm not speculating, um, the more intact your hippocampus is, the more um, you can actually think about your future. So what that tells us is that the more experiences that we have that we can remember, the better we can actually. Think about our future, and um, well, let me just leave it at that. Uh,
1: one one a tie in tie into blue mind being that when we are at the water, we're offshore. When we're seeing the horizon in just a big blue changing environment without landmarks, that part of our brain that is making those maps and trying to map and find places and and navigate in that way gets a break. So we try, but that's not happening. The surface of the water is changing, and it's a a bit of a a, a restful vacation, I guess you could say. Um, But I think we are getting the signal that we're we're winding down. And there was a man that was standing here very patiently, oh, and very enthusiastically waiting to... he uh, gave his spot to me. Oh, so gracious, generous. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you for the blue marble. I love pocket items, and I'll hold that one on <laughs> for a while. Um, my question is about any kind of quantifiable research that you've done about the ability to facilitate this blue mind, and for the blue to hold that intention, this water and. For us to reap the benefits or kind of for it to bounce back and affect us well I'd say many of these questions are are really brand new I think the you know the, the book that I've just written is more a book of questions than answers um, and the people here are some of the people who are practicing and advancing advancing the research I do know that when the experience I've had with people who find water their water to be medicine, they in turn become water warriors. And so that experience of, of finding peace or finding solace or finding healing in one's waters turns them on in a way that is kind of off the chart in terms of um, speaking for and defending and advocating for the health of wild waters. And so that, uh, not really research, but a set of personal experiences in, in that regard. And if anyone wants to add to that, that would be.
4: Yeah, no, I think it's a beautiful piece. And I was just going to add that a lot of what we were speaking about, we haven't explicitly done, you know, blue mind experiments per se, and that's actually what we're working towards doing. So these are you know, a bunch of hypotheses that we've come up with that are testable based off of what we know about how the brain is constructed and how water does affect the brain. So hopefully in a couple of years, we'll be able to give you some answers.
0: Cool. If you need any test subjects, i <laughs> yeah. drinking water. I think we have a
1: room full of, of volunteers. You know, um, we're, we're getting all kinds of flashing signals that we are done, but what I would, uh, and they're red, I am going to invite you to continue this conversation. Uh, I've got a book signing, I believe, at 4:30 over at the bookstore, and I hope um, you'll join me in thanking all of our our panelists and speakers and wonderful people here.